Boom. Hello and welcome to the Protector Nation podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to making the world a better place, making the world a safer place by making good people dangerous. In this podcast, we're going to study and understand what it takes to protect, to protect your family, to protect your loved ones, because we all know that you have a few basic needs, food, water, and shelter, but you also have the need to protect those things in a world and society where evil runs rampant and is sometimes left unchecked. Learning how to protect yourselves and your loved ones is becoming more and more important. And so we strive to raise the level of accountability to those who would do evil on this planet by making sure that the sheep, that the flock, is more well-versed in protecting themselves and their loved ones. If that sounds interesting to you, then sit back and enjoy the show. Out. Boom! What's up, you guys? Byron Rogers here with another episode of the Protected Podcast. I've got an honored guest, Michael Janich of Marshall Blade Concepts. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. How about you, Byron? I'm excited. I'm 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 doing real good. It's an honor to have you here. You got over 40 years of experience in the game teaching, you know, integrated martial arts of many different types, blade stuff and hand-to-hand stuff and point shooting. So I'm I'm extremely excited. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm honored. Yes, sir. You've been in this stuff longer than I've been alive. <laughs> I know more about martial arts than I know about life. <laughs> All those eight campaigns are worthwhile now, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an honor to learn from you, sir. Um, I guess we'll dig right, right into it with the first question. And I love this question because it's about understanding the man behind the work. You know, who would you say you are at your core? Like who's the guy behind the, all the all the stuff? You know, I'm the guy. Probably the best way to describe it is I'm the guy who uh, loves his family, cares about his own personal safety, and has embraced reality deeply enough to know that when bad things happen, I'm on my own. Yeah, and you have a really nice haircut. I'm, <laughs> I'm a hero, man. Uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> Model success, you know. <laughs> There's a crutch. Um, no, that's awesome. I, 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 the things you said, obviously, I think are some of the most important values of life, but I, I really like um, the part where you're talking about, you know, you're able to really look deeply enough at reality to realize, you know, that you're on your own when these things happen. I think that's something that a lot of, well, I guess people that aren't probably aren't forced to look at reality the way that we've probably experientially had to walk through it neglect to do or maybe just don't want to do i think it's more the latter i think you know ignorance is bliss and some people cultivate ignorance pretty actively because it's it's easier you know it's one of those things where hey something bad, bad happens i'll dial 911 police or helicopter in fast rope down everything will be great i'll never get hurt you know it's it's all going to be good and it doesn't work that way and uh people don't like to be disabused of that fantasy <clears throat> it's like unplugging them from the matrix, I guess. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I think too, there's, there's it's not a duty, but there is some kind of a responsibility, I guess, as protectors that we have to really find ways to help them realize that truth and make it palatable and understandable, you know? So it's, it's awesome that you're teaching these things and walking people through these things for sure. Um. How did you get into doing what you're doing? Um, got interested in the martial arts back in the early 70s. So it was 
Bruce Lee era, Kung Fu movies, all that kind of stuff. So <clears throat> from a popular culture aspect, it was obviously something that was, uh, you know, very much um, popular at the time. But also I grew up in a place called Cicero, Illinois, just literally a half block outside the Chicago city limits. And it was just kind of a grungy little industrial area. And we had our share of both kind of homegrown crime there and also uh, crime that would spill over from Chicago into our area. So self-defense was, you know, a useful thing to have based on that environment. So those two kind of went hand in hand. And as I started to get into things and study the martial arts, um, you start to realize the difference between, okay, what's fun to do and what's, you know, what's cool to do <clears throat> from a physical, you know, challenge standpoint and from a, an athleticism standpoint. And then you look at it and say, okay, well, what's going to keep me from getting my ass kicked? <laughs> right. Eventually you start to reprioritize, especially once you get your ass kicked a few times. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, is there, as, as, so there's kind of like a situational demand was kind of placed on you. Uh, I think something we see in the world now that's interesting is that a lot of people are able to live their lives without feeling the pressure of that demand mm -hmm. until it sneaks up until that, you know, the herb burrows and chaos like comes up and gets them one day and they're like, oh my gosh, you know. You know, a lot of it is just the, the paradigm shift that we've had as far as culture. You yes. know, if you talk to anybody my age and you say, hey, you know, tell me about your, you know, what, what schoolyard fights did you have when you were a kid? And they'll just kind right. of run off a list. Well, yeah, I was this kid in sixth grade and this kid in eighth grade. And they'll go through all that stuff and talk about black eyes and bloody lips and loose teeth and all that kind of stuff. And that was just, you know, part of growing up. And now it's interesting because I'll, I'll talk to like law enforcement trainers and they'll say, you know, I've got guys going through the academy who've never been in a fight. You know, they yeah. never actually had somebody throw a punch at them and they, you know, trying to get them to do scenario based training when they've never even had a fat lip is a huge, you know, huge jump. So, you know, it becomes one of those things where, again, you know, once you have that experience, it doesn't have to be a life threatening experience. But I mean, getting punched in the face is a sobering moment. And it's kind of, <laughs> you know what, I don't want that to happen to me anymore. Let me figure out how to do something about it. And, you know, it, it becomes that catharsis that you need. Yeah, uh, A lot of people have never had that. And the, the longer you go without that, when something bad does happen, the more disruptive it is to, to your values and everything else. You, you freak out at that point because it's like, well, shit, I've made it this far. And, you know, this has never happened to me before. Okay. You've been lucky. And sadly, the way that society has evolved, you know, everyone's a special snowflake and all that kind of stuff. And that stuff's not supposed to happen to them. We have a zero tolerance policy. Well, that's right. ultimately it's made a lot of people a lot weaker and a lot less uh, in tune with reality. Yeah. So there's like, there's like, and I, I talk a lot about like the privilege of suffering and being honored by your enemies and the quality of the problems you get to solve. So there's like a, there's like a privilege of getting into a confrontation. There's like a privilege of getting punched in the face, <laughs> you know, it, it well, your awareness. And it is a gift, you know, it's not necessarily one you ordered, <laughs> but right. it's one that you receive. And then what you do, you, you got, you know, two ways to look at it. Either you embrace it and you say, I'm going to benefit from this and I'm going to grow from it and I'm going to be better prepared next time. Or you say, okay, this was a one-off thing and I'm going to go back to burying my head in the sand. Um, so it, it really is a gift and a privilege if you embrace it as such. Yeah. Perspective dictates performance. That's good stuff. Absolutely. 
is there a what would you say about why you do you've been in this game for you know a long time as i mentioned why is it that you continue and you do what you do it's probably changed over the years but there's there's a number of different reasons and and yeah it has changed over the years um you know my again when i got involved in martial arts and and started training and different stuff and getting exposed to different things i kind of drifted around and you know i spent hours and hours learning jumping spinning kicks and all this wild stuff and everything and then you get to a point where you realize you know that's that's an athletic pursuit which not to say that it's bad but what do you do with it unless you know you're you're going to be in a movie somewhere or something like that or that is your pursuit to teach other people how to do that um it really doesn't have much direct application and when you get to the point where you say you know what self-defense really is my primary goal then you need to focus on a skill set that supports that um one of the things also that i found um i've had a lot of really good instructors over the years and i've also had and worked with a lot of really bad instructors mm-hmm. and one of the most difficult things I think in self-defense is finding something that works for you. The operative part of self-defense is self. Um, So whoever you are as an individual, whatever your individual attributes are, your capabilities, that defines what you can bring to the, to the game. If, if you're forced to defend yourself and that differs from person to person. And the problem with a lot of traditional martial arts and the traditional approach is that they want everyone to look the same. The idea is to clone the sensei, so everyone gets out there and they're all in lockstep and they're all doing the exact same stuff at the same time. And the system becomes more important than the individual. Mm. Um, I don't feel that's the best way for people to prepare themselves to protect themselves, because again, you got to take those individual attributes into, into play. So one of the things that I decided to focus on very heavily was, hey, we welcome everybody. And what we want to do is give you the best that we can give you that fits your individual needs. And then, you know, it's like you always hear this this term or this phrase, you know, it's another tool for your toolkit. Okay, well, how big is your toolkit? How much does it weigh and how much are you going to carry around on a daily basis? I don't need pounds of tools. What I need is enough tools to where I can fix just about anything with what I've got. And the other aspect of it is my toolkit may be a little bit different than the guy next to me. If I'm fixing refrigerators and he's a plumber, okay, there's going to be a little bit of a difference as far as what we're doing tool-wise there. Um, And he chooses things that work well for him. I choose things that work well for me and we both get the job done well. So I think taking that mindset and, you know, getting people to to embrace that is much more empowering for for people who are really looking for self-defense capabilities than the idea of, okay, you're going to be another Shotokan black belt or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt or whatever it might be. And you're going to fight like everybody else. The saying that we have in NBC is you don't have to fight like me. You just have to fight well. Man, golly, there's me so many one-liners coming out of this. I can already tell. Self-defense is about self. Uh, you don't have to fight like me. You got to fight well. This is outstanding. I think it's it, it really tackles a huge part of the equation. It may be even something that stops many people from getting into self-defense or investigating it because they just don't think they have the physical potency. But from this perspective, it's learn to use the tools you have and learn new tools that apply to you situations, dictates tactics, all those things. Um, man, that's very important. That's awesome. Tactical background real quick for everybody. What do you, you know, 
where the lineage, you know, how, what's your tactical background, sir? So again, I got into martial arts early seventies and what was cool about it, <clears throat> the martial art that I first started studying was called American self-protection ASP. So it was a guy who his name was Evan S. Baltazzi. He had very high ranks in uh, traditional martial arts, especially for that time. So judo, aikido, savat, Western boxing, uh, very accomplished at those. And what he did was try to distill them down into a more practical system that got rid of a lot of the, the dogma and a lot of the, you know, the, the bad aspects of the martial arts tradition. Um, so a lot of people who were attracted to that system, I did it because it was all I could afford. Um, but a lot of the instructors we had were already accomplished in other systems. So we had guys who were black belts in Taekwondo, Kyokushinkai Karate, Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, all this other stuff. So when we do a typical workout, we'd go for like an hour and a half or so and do the ASP stuff. And then the last half hour, one of these guys would get up and say, hey, this is some stuff that I cherry picked from, you know, this other martial art that I studied. Let me show you some cool stuff. So it gave me a really nice, open-minded approach right off the bat. Um, and I, I learned a lot from that because I, I learned, you know, to kind of get beyond the system and the limitations of, of the system. But um, with that mindset um, started, one of the things that scared me the most was being attacked by somebody with a knife. And um, mortifying. Oh, yeah. The techniques that we were learning in the system were not very good. Uh, okay. We would try to, to amp things up and uh, make them more realistic, and they invariably fell apart. So I went to the instructor and I said, hey, our counter knife techniques suck. I want something better. And he said, if you want to learn how to use, or excuse me, if you want to learn how to defend against a weapon, learn how to use the weapon. And I'm like, okay, cool. Let's learn knife. Yeah. yeah. It was mid-1970s. Uh, he was a former Army Ranger, so he had some military-style knife fighting mm -hmm. stuff. He showed us a little bit. Uh, but this was right around the time that Soldier of Fortune magazine came out. The first books that had been published on knife techniques since World War II were being published in the mid-70s. So Secrets of Modern Knife Fighting, Complete Book of Knife Fighting, stuff like that. And one of my training partners told me, hey, you need to check out Soldier Fortune magazine because they have some stuff in there that might be of interest to you. Check that out, found out about Paladin Press, uh, started ordering stuff from Paladin Press and started building my library. And that's where I found out about people like Colonel Rex Applegate, um, you know, a lot of the close combat legends, W.E. Fairburn, E.A. Sykes, all that kind of stuff. And I started really digging deep into that type of stuff. Um, and that became a, a huge part of just getting grounded, I guess, in the combative side of, of self-defense. And again, with, you know, like-minded training partners and stuff like that, got out there on the mat, gave that stuff a try, figured out what worked and what didn't and what we kind of wanted to embrace. Um, joined the army when I was 17. Um, so I was on the Intel side. I was, um, a Chinese Mandarin and Vietnamese linguist. So I was in signals intelligence, worked at NSA for a number of years, worked at, uh, NSA's collection station, field station Kunia in, in Hawaii. Um, and throughout that entire time, you know, being in the military, you always run into people who are training different martial arts down at the gym. So you go into the gym, there's somebody over there hitting a heavy bag or something like that. And got a chance to, again, kind of get, become kind of a bastard son of many fathers in the sense of, you know, working with different people and kind of cherry picking what they had to offer. And it was a really nice non-denominational way to approach, you know, martial arts and combative training. As I learned more about the knife stuff specifically, um, learned about the Filipino martial arts, heard, heard of them and heard that, you know, they were the most advanced edge weapon culture. So I was stationed in Hawaii, went to the Filipino Chamber of Commerce and I said, hey, I'm looking for training in the Filipino martial arts. They gave me a few names. 
unfortunately, the, the Filipino community was very closed. The fact that I was not ethnic Filipino, I was kind of excluded from being able to train knife stuff. But finally, uh, Raymond Tobosa, Grandmaster Raymond Tobosa, kind of took me under his wing and he said, I'll teach you stick. And I said, well, sir, I really want to learn knife. And he's like, no, I'll teach you stick. And it's like, <laughs> that kind of started my passion for the Filipino martial arts. Um, and taking that plus my background as an intel analyst, what I did was started analyzing the Filipino stuff because they're saying is that essentially the movements are all the same. The mechanics are all the same. You simply adapt to the attributes of the weapon. So wood seeks bone. Basically, if you have a stick, you're breaking bones. If you have an edge weapon, steel seeks flesh. So you would cut fleshy parts. So it's like, okay, cool. I'll take the, the stick stuff and I'll make that into knife technique. And that became kind of the, the roots of what became martial blade concepts. And um, continued to train uh, when I was stationed in Hawaii the second time, trained in Serrata Escrima, which is the, the real, the strongest basis I got in the Filipino martial arts. Um, and then when I left government service, went to work for Paladin Press in 1994. I'd already written a couple of books for them. And they were looking to start um, in-house uh, video production. And specifically, they wanted me to work with Colonel Rex Applegate. So Colonel Applegate, I'd read his books when I was a kid, taught myself to point shoot with a BB gun from, from the stuff that I learned from his books. So uh, ended up working with Colonel Applegate and I was one of the, well, really the only person at Paladin who took an active interest in the subject matter. So the Colonel really took me under his wings and became a mentor for me. And during the 10 years that I was with Paladin, I also got kind of a graduate level education in the martial arts, working with people like Kelly McCann, uh, Jim Keating, Kelly Warden, um, from the shooting side, Jim Cirillo, Louis Auerbuck, um, Gabe Suarez, just some of the best names in the business. Got to work with them on video projects and really crawl inside their heads to figure out how they approach the problem. And that became a huge part of my, my training as well. Outstanding. So this whole martial arts is about you has really kind of been the premise because you've taken from all these different arts and just absorb what's useful, disregard what's useless, add what is essentially your own Bruce Lee, kind of the whole, the whole thing over the spectrum over the years. I think one of the things that people fail to realize sometimes is that every martial art was created by somebody. Okay. In a lot of cases, when you study a traditional martial art, you're studying something that is an established tradition. And although you look at, you know, the revered masters that, you know, came before you and everything, they're more icons than they are instructors. You know, one of the, again, you like the one-liners, but one of the sayings that I have when I teach is the greatest qualification that many martial arts have, uh, many martial arts teachers have is that they're dead and they don't have to answer questions anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. They got off the hook. Right, exactly. So basically, it's like, hey, do it my way, especially in the traditional martial arts. It's like, this is the form. This is what we do. And it's like, well, why do we do this this way? Oh, you're a bad student. Shut up. Do what I say. And you have this disciplinarian type of thing that overrides actual learning because you can't ask a fair question. Wow. Now, that's good stuff. For those who don't know about Colonel Rex Applegate, uh, what would you say about him? Just so they get some idea. So Colonel Applegate, if, if you if you don't know about him, then you owe it to yourself. If you're serious about you know military history, combative history, and everything else, um, basically Colonel Applegate, his great grandfather was one of the trailblazers on the Oregon Trail. So his lineage as an American patriot goes back you know generations. Um, Colonel Applegate grew up in Oregon. Uh, basically, before World War II, he was uh, going to college. 
on the ROTC program, was getting ready to get out and get his commission in the military right around the time that World War, that our involvement in World War II started. Colonel Applegate was a, a big dude. He went into the MPs. And um, around that time, we decided, the, the U.S. decided it was time to get into the war and also to get into the intelligence side of things. Uh, so while Bill Donovan uh, was basically tasked to set up what started off as the COI, Coordinator of Information, later became the OSS, Office of Strategic Services. And what he wanted was essentially to set up spies and a spy network and spy training in the same vein as the SOE, Special Operations Executive, the British counterpart, uh, which had been going for a number of years already in World War II. So Colonel Applegate was specifically chosen and recruited by Donovan to be the close combat trainer for the OSS. So he basically brought him to Washington, handed him a, a suitcase with $50,000 in it and said, learn everything there is to know about close combat and teach our guys to do it. So he became the close combat trainer, uh, went over to the, the UK, cross-trained with W.E. Fairburn and E.A. Sykes. So they were Shanghai Municipal Police, were kind of the grandfathers of a lot of kind of modern tactics and, and uh, SWAT tactics and stuff like that. Uh, designers of the Fairburn Sykes Commando Dagger. And they were called back uh, to the UK because they were training the Home Guard and also training all the SOE guys. Uh, so they were had decades of experience in Shanghai as far as close combat and dirty tactics and that type of thing. And the Brits felt that's exactly what they needed for their commandos. So Colonel Applegate cross-trained with them, came back, and he basically was the uh, close combat trainer for the OSS, and then later the MITC, the Military Intelligence Training Center, which was kind of the broad-based um, intelligence gathering, intelligence operatives training that we had during World War II. And uh, did that during World War II. After World War II, he settled in Mexico for a while, was a major arms importer for, for Mexico. He was also a... Uh, um, a consultant for the Mexican army as far as riot control. So it became one of the, the foremost experts on riot control. And basically what he did was he kind of took his pedigree as a close combat trainer, um, equipment designer and everything else. And he continued that for another 50 years after World War II and continued to design knives, continued to point shooting and, and his doctrine and everything else, and really continued to be an educator and a, a really strong influence in the tactical community for 50 years after, after the war. Wow. Wow, what a man. Outstanding. Uh, and then just real quick, books you've written. I know you've written a few. Uh, would you mind just dropping some titles and some one-liners on real quick? The first book was on blowguns, which was a, a interest of mine, blowguns, breath of death. Um, these were all under Paladin. So when I got associated with Paladin Press and started writing for them, did blowguns, knife fighting, a practical course, street steel, uh, homemade martial arts training equipment, Mook John construction manual, uh, bullseyes don't shoot back, which I co-authored with Colonel Applegate. Um, did a book on learning languages. There's about a dozen of them. I wrote a book on, uh, called The Best Defense after I got involved in the Best Defense TV series. So um, some of those are still in print. I'm trying to bring some of the older ones back since Paladin closed down a couple of years ago. All the rights have reverted to me and I just need to find enough time to get all that stuff back into print. But they're, they're slowly coming back. Sweet. And they can find all that stuff on your website and all that? or 
yeah, the actually the best place if you want to go go shopping for stuff, either marshallbladeconcepts.com, which is more information on all aspects of what I do, including my seminar schedule. And then there's also marshallbladeconcepts.tv, which is the actual uh, e-commerce site for digital copies of my videos and stuff like that. Nice. We'll have that in the show notes for sure. So for everyone listening, what would you say if you were going to, if someone was just grassroots, like I need a, I want to start to learn how, you know, I say we have basic needs, food, water, shelter. We're talking about all that stuff, but the need, I believe to protect yourself is a basic need. What would you say, where would someone start? What I would say is, is take a look at where you are right now, as far as physical attributes and mindset and everything else. And essentially make the commitment that you want to protect yourself and then look at what you've got to work with physically and then try to figure out something that's appropriate. Um, the reason I say that the way I teach, I kind of consider four pillars. So first you have physical attributes when you're young and strong, good reflexes and everything else. You got a lot to work with, even if you don't have much skill. Um, the second pillar is skill itself. So actual skill in doing specific techniques or tactics or anything like that. Third one is weapons. Fourth one is mindset. It's kind of like when you think of like an equalizer for a stereo, what you're trying yeah. to do is kind of tune in all those frequencies so that what you get coming out at the end is it sounds good. Okay. As far as <laughs> right. concerned, what you're doing is you're tuning all those frequencies. So what you get coming out at the end is decisive violence, meaning that you can bring violence to an attacker, do whatever is necessary to make that person stop. So what you're looking at is, okay, if I've got these things to play with, when you're young, again, you don't necessarily need a weapon. You're young, so you've got a, a bad attitude already. So your mindset is already, you got the confidence you need. You right. may not have skill, but you got great physical attributes. Boom, you've already got the, the output you need. As yeah. we get older, if we get injured, or if you have any kind of a physical limitation due to, again, injury or illness or whatever else it might be, your physical attributes may diminish. But if you train regularly, your skills go up. So again, you get that good output and you're good to go. If you get to a point eventually in life where it's like, you know what, doing stuff unarmed, uh, I'm either too old or too frail or too injured or whatever else it might be, dealing with something unarmed may not be the best option. So now what you have to do is introduce those weapons. And again, ideally, the training has been ongoing to learn how to use those weapons as you go. Um, but you now have a lower threshold of response as far as dealing with a threat to where introducing a weapon makes more sense. So looking at things that way, um, there's a lot of misconceptions about martial arts and self-defense. You know, if you're a small frame female, you know, you weigh 100 pounds and you've got limited physical attributes to work with, you may be very determined and have a great mindset. You may be right. fit. But the amount of force that you can actually bring into play, even if you had high skill, is going to be limited. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a woman like that is going to have to bring a weapon into play sooner to be able to have that equalizer and get the output she needs. You know, same thing if, you know, you're 50 pounds overweight and you, you don't have the cardio and all this other kind of stuff. The idea that you're going to join a class and say, well, I'm going to get fit and then I'll eventually be able to, to learn how to defend myself. What if you could attack between now and then? Mm -hmm doesn't do you any good. So again, accepting that reality and saying, okay, right now, maybe the best thing to do while I'm learning how to hit people with my hands, I'm going to carry pepper spray and I've got a less lethal alternative. Somebody, you know, if I get in a situation where I need it, I'll paint them orange and then get away uh, until I get to the point where I've got the empty hand skills to be able to solve the problem in a different way. 
Wow. That's awesome. I was going to, I was going to throw that female question at, at you and you're you just handling it, <laughs> you know, cause it's something I get asked quite a bit. And, uh, I, the way you explained it is extremely, extremely, it's, it's on point. That's perfect. Cause that physical potency uh, issue is something that you have to look at accurately if you really want to be able to get the desirable result. Um, yeah, again, people talk about reality-based self-defense all the time. Well, yeah. reality-based self-defense starts with reality. Right. So you know, it's like, you know, if I'm running a class, I'm mm-hmm. telling people, hey, work with different partners in the class. It's like, well, I came with my buddy and everything. It's like, no, this is important because what I want you to do is to work with a guy who's bigger, work with somebody who's smaller, work with, you know, everybody you've got so that you can try your techniques on people of different sizes and strength levels. And what that does then is it gives you, you know, again, people talk about awareness all the time. Part of the awareness that we need to cultivate is where do I stand as far as sizing myself up with the rest of society? So if you are of smaller stature, then that's your reality. You know, you can't ignore that. So you can get stronger, but you can't get any bigger. Your arms aren't going to get any longer. You know, nothing is going to change as far as that goes. And you're going to hit a point where you're kind of maxed out as far as whatever you bring with regard to physicality. Okay, great. You know, so if, again, we look at what output do I need as far as effective violence, if you can't hit that threshold, you need to start supplementing with weapons and other stuff. And it also, when it comes to justifying that in self-defense, you say, why did you use pepper spray against this guy? And it's like, you know what, I've been training for years. I'm a smaller guy, you know, or I've got, you know, a physical limitation. I had a knee replacement. I, you know, torn meniscus, whatever it might be. I've got something I couldn't run away. And therefore my physical attributes diminished my capability and I needed to make up for it in some other way. Right. And that experience and that information comes through training. That's awesome. Understanding where you're at on this kind of a spectrum of that physical potency helps you intelligently understand what tools to implement and when, you know, so like this whole kind of going out and buying a gun culture is like, okay, you know, but understand all your force options, how and when to use them. I always tell people, they're like, well, what gun should I buy? I'm like, I think the bigger question is what training you're going to invest in, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, or what gun are you actually going to carry? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the first question, <laughs> you know? Okay, do you just want a placebo? Okay, buy something cheap and spend your money on something else because you're not going to carry it anyway. Right, right. Yeah, that's if awesome. And if it just makes you feel better, you know, while it's sitting in your sock drawer, doesn't mm-hmm. matter what you buy. Yeah, no, 100%. And then kind of on the handguns thing, you mentioned point shooting a little bit. What would you say about point shooting? Kind of a quick 101 on that. What is it? How is it? It's a huge component for point shooting. The, the, the main thing that I would say with that is, again, there's so many people hear point shooting and they're like, oh, that's bullshit. It's hip shooting. It's spray and pray. It's, there's this immediate j- jump to judgment. What it comes down to, I'm, I'm a big believer in precision of terminology, okay? So when you give people poor words to work with, they have poor ideas. So point shooting, when you think of it, it's like, can you point at something? Sure, no problem. Boom, I just pointed. Okay, what is that? It's your body's way of orienting something kinesthetically, okay? So it's kinesthetic alignment. Great. Wow. Can we agree on that? Sure. Okay. So if I, put, all the time. <laughs> if I put a handgun in my hand and I kept my index finger straight along the, the frame of the handgun and I pointed with my index finger, am I pointing the gun accurately? Yeah. Okay. Cool. I would argue that all shooting kind of starts with that process. 
So regardless of what shooting discipline you aspire to, what, what stance you use and all that kind of stuff, the first thing you do is kinesthetically orient the gun with the target. Okay. At that point, what it comes down to is how much more precision do I need based on the circumstances and based on the visual resources I've got? Can I see my sights? Are they large enough? Are they visible enough? Is there enough ambient lighting to where I can actually see my sights? And if it's actually a violent encounter and your body alarm reaction has been activated, sympathetic nervous system has kicked in, your pupils have dilated, and now you've lost near vision acuity, can I actually see my sights even if I tried to look at them? You put all those things together and it's like, you know what? Hey, good enough. Bang. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah understanding all that stuff there's a big difference just like you know when we talk about martial arts and self-defense there's you have shooting and marksmanship and the the mechanical aspects of you know firing a, a weapon and then you have the gunfighting aspect of it two different worlds yeah okay no i dig that man and it's it's uh I've heard it myself. That's why I brought the question up. You know, so I'll point you and that's, yeah. And I'm like, okay. Uh, interesting. It's always really interested me. Uh, but I think even from what you just said, that's something I'm going to start trying to implement. on the range. One of the interesting things, and this is also for the people who are really adamant about sighted fire and it's like, no, you need to be, you know, laser focused on your front sight. And it's like, okay, cool. Let's talk about defensive shooting. So a little, little tangent here, but I think you'll like it. Yeah. Um, so you're looking at a, a potential threat. You realize, okay, this guy raises up a knife. He's got a knife in his hand. I am justified. He's got ability, opportunity, imminent jeopardy. All this stuff falls into play. And you say, I can draw my gun and shoot this guy. So you draw your gun, you orient the gun, your visual focus switches now to that front sight. And then you decide to squeeze the trigger. Okay. Physiologically, our eyes can only focus on one plane at a time. So you can't get up in court and say, you know what? I was certain that he was still a viable threat at that point because you weren't looking at him. You were looking at the right. front. So you're right for fuzzy target, right? That's what we're talking. <laughs> and again, it's we're talking about fractions of a second. Right. But, I mean, literally, if you had a sharp attorney who was going to say, well, why did you shoot this guy? It's like, well, he had the ability to kill me at that point. He was armed. He had a knife in his hand. Everything else fell into play as far as justifiable self-defense. And it's like, well, were you looking at him in the knife at the time that you squeeze the trigger? No, I was looking at my front sight. Okay, then how do you know he was still armed? We found the knife next to him when he fell. He may have dropped it before you shot him. You may have shot an unarmed man. You know, again, it's it's all very arguable from a legal standpoint. You know, we look at it from a self-defense standpoint and say, well, no, that's not what happened. But again, yeah. it, it all comes down to precise words and ideas. Right. What was that you said? You said something about... Precise concepts for precise, uh, like the terminology breeds. Basically precision of terminology. If you've, if you've got the right words and you have the right ideas, if you start with bad words, you start with incorrect ideas. Outstanding. I love that. And then what, what, what is really the premise of martial blade concepts? You know, someone was curious about that. So martial blade concepts, basically what it is, is um, it's taking proven concepts, techniques, and tactics, primarily from the Filipino martial arts, and then putting those into a modern self-defense context that also is very much focused on understanding human anatomy. 
Mm. So it's interesting when you look at, you know, traditional Filipino martial arts and stuff, you see knife stuff, you'll see them do things like, okay, this guy attacks me with a knife and I'm going to parry this. I'm going to hook this. I'm going to strip this guy's knife, disarm him. And then I'm going to stab him in the neck. And right. it's like, okay, that's really cool. That was awesome. Looks um, great. It looks great. You know, again, YouTube is going to blow up. From an infotainment standpoint, it's right. awesome. Okay. But then you look at it and say, okay, fine. So what I did was I trained really hard in this stuff and then I was attacked and then I used it. Why did I end up in prison? Mm. So what you look at is, okay, this guy attacked me and I deflected and I did this and I disarmed him. Okay. So at that point, according to self-defense law, Unless we can justify that he's still a lethal threat, meaning that there's a majority of size and strength. He has a secondary weapon. There's some other reason that he remains a lethal threat once you disarmed him. At that point, you've eliminated the lethal threat and are no longer legally justified in using the knife against him. But the way you trained, again, you'll fight the way you train. I disarmed him and then I killed him. So you went from justifiable self-defense to assault with a deadly weapon to murder. So when you have a premise that is based on, oh, this is traditional Filipino martial art. Okay, great. That's based on traditional battlefield application of those skills, mm. which is a vastly different context than modern self-defense. Wow. So what you look at is, okay, in modern self-defense, what do I have to do? First of all, I have to defend myself effectively. And right. how do I do that? I have to stop the threat. So the focus right. is on stopping rather than lethality. Okay. I also have to look at this and I have to say, what am I going to be fighting with? I may be training with a, a foot long dagger because that's what that traditional martial art does. But right. realistically, I may have a folding knife with a three inch blade in my pocket and that's my fighting knife. Mm-hmm. So now what I have to do is take that knife, figure out what its destructive capacity is, translate that to human anatomy, and then look at the vulnerabilities of human anatomy that allow me to stop somebody decisively with. Yeah the capabilities of that knife and then be able to justify my actions afterward. Yeah. So really what it comes down to is what we focus on, you fight with the knife you actually carry. You need to understand the destructive capacity of that knife. You need to focus on stopping power. And to do that, you need to understand human anatomy and basically dispel, dispel a lot of the myths about knife stopping power and focus on what really works by listening to doctors rather than the internet or whatever. So we focus a lot on uh, anatomy. Basically, we have three levels of stopping power. You have the, the muscu- muscular and, and uh, mechanical aspects. So muscles pull on tendons to move bones. If right. you physically destroy any part of that connection, if you cut the muscle deeply enough, it can't contract. If you cut the tendons so that the muscle is disconnected from the bones, essentially you take away that physical capability. Second level is peripheral nerves. In order for muscles to move, the brain has to send electrical impulses to the muscle to stimulate it. If you cut while cutting the muscle, if you're also cutting the nerve, you've disconnected the brain from the muscle that it's trying to control. Again, you achieve instantaneous results. And then the third level, which is the most misunderstood, is blood loss. So when it comes to blood loss, people don't bleed quickly enough to be for blood loss to be a reliable sense of stopping power. It adds lethality, and it can be a form of time-delayed stopping power, but right. it really doesn't um, happen quickly enough to be able to solve your problems in the, the short time span that we're talking about. Yeah, to survive the encounter. Anyway, right. so you guys might bleed out right next to each other by the end of the thing. Again, you know, I, I tell people, it's like, okay, let's think of, again, one of the aspects of NBC is we, we look at being able to use the knife to defend against 
any kind of justifiable threat. So if we imagine a guy with a tire iron who says, you know, I'm going to bash your skull in, how long do you want this guy to have the opportunity? Bash him. Yeah. How long do you want to wait? How many, how many SWATs do you want him to take? <laughs> um, ideally none, you know, a uh, second choice would be no more than one. Okay, great. So the longer you leave him capable of that action, right. the more danger you face. So the stopping power has to be as instantaneous as you can possibly get. And that's why focusing on the mechanics of the body parts that allow him to be dangerous to you, unlike shooting where you're basically hitting ideally central nervous system to shut the whole body down with a knife, it doesn't have the capacity to do that effectively. So we look at is, okay, what parts does he need? He needs to be able to grip the weapon. Great. Cut his flexor tendons. Hopefully he drops his weapon. If you can't do that, cut bicep and tricep so he can't wield the weapon effectively. Next target is the quadricep right above the knee. If he can't stand up and he can't achieve mobility with a contact distance weapon, you can create distance and create safety quicker and, and more efficiently than trying to kill his entire body to make his arm stop. Wow. Outstanding. Wow. Yeah. Good stuff. Very well thought out. That's, that's, that's interesting. I've been doing a lot more blade work, a lot more training with with blades, we're having some blade experts at this upcoming protection symposium. And um, I haven't heard it explained like that. You know, a lot of what I've seen and heard has really focused on the pumpers and, you know, like the, the blood, you know, that blood loss and things like that. But going for that, it reminds me of the Marine Corps when they're, we're, you know, hunting tanks with my MOS, uh, you know, being a 51, it's like going for that mobility kill is also an extremely viable option. You know, the catastrophic kill might come with the human body, but that mobility kills pretty great. And it's probably cleaner in court. <laughs> the other things, again, when you look at the MBC and how it differs from a lot of other systems, there's a lot of stuff out there now that is very thrust focused. And there's also this misconception that, you know, okay, if, um, if somebody uses a particular technique in prison, then obviously it's effective. And well, no, um, you know, the people will argue that, you know, prison style knife fighting, that's where it's the, the pinnacle of, of, you know, functionality. What they forget is it's all improvised weapons. Mm. So when you have something that really doesn't have an effective cutting edge, your tactics okay. are based around the point. They have yeah. to. Okay. So if all yeah. you've got is a sharpened screwdriver or a, a, a toothbrush, or, toothbrush or whatever else it might be, that's all you got to work with. And that's basically going to dictate your technique. Well, what it also comes down to is I've been a, uh, an expert consultant on a number of legal cases where knives were used in self-defense claim, claimed to have been used in, in self-defense. So what's interesting is have people approach me and say, you know, I, I was attacked. I used a knife, defended myself, but now I'm being accused of a crime and I need your help in my defense. So it's like, okay, let's take a look at this stuff. So you start looking through coroner's reports and stuff like that. You start looking through police reports. And when you've taken into consideration that the vast majority of knife use out there, 99, more than 99% of knife use is going to be felonious. It's going to be a bad guy doing something illegal, in many cases, to an unarmed person with a knife. Mm. That's what the courts, that's what law enforcement officers, that's what everyone else is conditioned to seeing. Right. Their perspective is based around that. Mm. So if you now replicate that kind of behavior with your technique where it's like, okay, I'm being attacked. I'm going to stab this guy as many times as it takes for him to fall down. Your work product 
looks exactly like a criminal assault, even if you were fully justified in self-defense. So now when you say, well, I'm the good guy. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, this steaming pile of meat over here that used to be a guy, it looks exactly like the guy that I saw stabbed last week. And then the two guys that I saw stabbed the week before. And again, from from the perspective of the system, they're looking at it's like your behavior is consistent with that of a criminal. Therefore, we're going to judge you like a criminal. Wow. If you focus on being able to say, I cut him here to try to make him drop his weapon. He didn't drop his weapon, so I cut his tricep so he couldn't swing the weapon at me again. Then I cut his quadricep. He fell down and I backed up. Okay, that all sounds very plausible. Even if you have an attorney who's now saying, well, no, you tried to kill this guy because you cut his brachial artery, you did this, you did that. And it's like, these were the targets I was specifically going after. I'm aware of the anatomy that was adjacent to them. But again, I was in fear for my life and fear of grievous bodily injury. And I purposely chose to train in a responsible ethical system that allowed me to save my own life without unnecessarily endangering his. Wow. So it allows you, you know, it's like they say a gun site, you got problem one, problem two, problem one, yeah. move through it, problem two, keep your house, keep your car, stay out of prison. And that in modern self-defense is a huge consideration. And if you don't take that into consideration, whatever training you do, again, as, as cool as and cool as it may be and as much fun as it may be, if it paints you into a really dark corner when it comes to the legalities of your actions, you need to think again. The lose battle, lose problem or battle number two. Right. Outstanding. I'm so I'm just over here, just boom, just mind blown with this this approach, this perspective. It's outstanding. Yeah, that's I'm still chewing on that. No, that's great stuff. Um, I know one of the things you mentioned was uh yeah, there's just a lot of stabby kind of murdery content out there. <laughs> you know, um, you know it, it, all, it also becomes one of those things where, you know, you'd ask before if somebody's looking for self-defense, what, what should they look at? Yeah. We all live in social media. We've got all these yeah. things out there and everything becomes a matter of public record. OK, so when you have one of the things I've tried very hard to do with NBC is to actively cultivate and maintain the impression that we're the good guys because that's what we're so when you have something that it's like hey here's a system that they're kind of cultish you know as far as you know they're talking about tribal this and tribal that and everything and they all wear you know skulls and flames and all this wild stuff and everything and they've got kind of a, a sketchy look to them and everything and it's like i keep seeing these videos of this guy talking about you know, doing these techniques and he's demonstrating everything on somebody who's not, you know, either a training partner without a weapon mm. or a Bob where it's like, you know, when I attack, I do this, when I attack, I do this. And what you've got now is essentially if you put that, you know, they always say you're going to be judged by a jury of your peers. That's not the case. You know, for you and me, that means walking into court, everyone's wearing an NRA hat, you know, reading SWAT magazine or whatever it might be. And it's right, like, yeah, right. he's innocent. He's good to go. You know, that that's our good peers. Yeah. Really. Okay. Instead, you get some little old lady in there who's a nice lady, but she thinks fighting is bad. So you yeah. got convince her that you know what ma'am i was in fear for my life and i had no choice i had to do what i did and i used i'm a good guy i I did things as responsibly and ethically and as morally as i possibly could while still ensuring that i could live through it 
you should start showing her some videos of, well, wait a minute, here's this guy, he looks kind of sketchy, and all he does is stab, 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 stab. It looks like he's the murderer. You don't want that kind of guilt by association. Yeah. So, and whatever you choose, you need to take a look at what the public image is of that system and everything that goes along with it. Do you really want somebody showing that when you're when you're in court trying to defend your actions and you're saying, wait a minute, I'm a good guy. And it's like, okay, then why do you associate with this type of behavior? Right. Wow. That's those are some great points. Because perception becomes reality. You know, always. perception becomes reality. And it's not always your perception, depending on the context of your situation. Um, wow, that's awesome. So then what would you say about lawful, uh, really effective blade selection and uh, the types of blades that civilians should look at to carry EDC considerations and things like that? I get that question a lot. People say, you know, what's yeah. the best knife for self-defense? And I'm saying, my first answer is, okay, take a look at all the tactical knives out there. Yeah. Look at the number of them that actually have matching training knives and start there. It pairs it down to about 1% of the overall selection. Huh. Because what you need to do is to have a trainer that replicates the mechanical function of your actual knife because the key is training. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, then you're kind of screwed. Um, so that pairs the, pairs the field down really, really quickly. Um, my go-to is the one that I designed. So it's basically, this is a Spyderco Yojimbo 2. Yeah. It has a matching trainer. This is what I carry every day. Um, so I'm a big fan of what's called the Warncliffe profile with the straight cutting edge because it allows you with a, a short blade to cut with full power all the way to the point. There's no point where the blade curves upward and the arc of motion of your arm and the arc of the blade coincide or run parallel to where it diminishes force. It's basically a, a box cutter on steroids. <laughs> yeah, outstanding. Uh, what do you just, you know, I, I got this thing for karambits. What do you think about karambits as, as, a, as a functional blade? <laughs> How polite do you want me to be? I yeah, know, right? Just send it, man. People are going to love you and hate you for this one. <laughs> you know, Again, from a martial arts perspective, karambits are, are cool. They're fun. Um, yeah. Do you know what the ring was originally for? What is it for? So when you go when you go back no when you go back historically the karambit was basically a little sickle that was used okay. for agricultural purposes. So mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia specifically, but also Southern Philippines, where the karambit was really um, in in most common use. If you imagine somebody out there harvesting rice, okay, yeah. so a sheath knife. They pull their knife out and they're like, okay, I've got to grab this bundle of stuff here. I've got to cut this. And then I got to tie this into a bundle and throw it in the basket, but I got to hold on to my knife. Oh. Once I cut this, my knife blade is all wet and sticky because I cut this stuff. So what they would do is they'd let it dangle from their pinky. They put the pinky through the ring, hold it this way, cut whatever they need to cut, let it dangle. And then they would tie their little bundle, throw it in the thing, swing it back up, do some more. Oh. When they were done, then they'd wipe off the blade and put it back in the sheath. So they didn't have to wipe it off every time. And it was more of a utilitarian type of thing than it was an actual weapon. But they were, you know, poor people. It was an agrarian society. So they learned to also fight with what they had. Right. And 
the the Quran became a natural weapon because it was something they had with them and it was it was something that was you know accessible and everything else. The thing is when you look at traditional karambit technique, there was very little of the spinning and the flashy stuff and all that kind of stuff. Um, it just what you'll see a lot of times in Penchak Silat, the Indonesian martial art, you'll see yeah. movements where they're doing punches and stuff where it looks like they're throwing the punch and they're actually a little bit off target. Yeah. And then they'll say, well, from an empty hand standpoint, what I'm doing is I'm either hitting with the ulnar side of my arm or I'm punching where I can hit targets at an angle striking with these knuckles. That's that's the 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 public explanation that they'll give. The karambits right here. Politically correct explanation. It's <laughs> designed to plow with the karambit. So when they punch slightly off target, they're actually plowing with the blade. Wow. So a lot of the movements are actually designed to look like punches right. because they're actually cutting with the blade. But again, when, when you look at going back to the Warncliffe, okay. So with this, when I'm cutting with this, if I'm mm -hmm. applying pressure here, I'm applying pressure, pressure is increasing, 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 increasing all the way to the point. Okay. Right. If I turn this over to where you've got either a curve or like a, an Americanized Tonto type of thing, if I were applying that same pressure, 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 nothing. Because yeah. at that point, the motion of my arm and this portion of the profile of the edge run parallel. So there's no longer any pressure. So if you imagine this as the outside curve of a karamba, even if it's double-edged, and you're yeah. spinning this thing, what you're doing is you're spinning and cutting with the outside curve without really applying a whole lot of pressure into the target. Interesting. So the cuts are going to be really superficial. Mm. When you look at the draw cuts and everything, you're gripping that thing with your index finger. So you've got this ring around your index finger. When you go to cut, what ends up happening is the handle presses really firmly, for lack of a better word, on this knuckle. If you yeah. really try to cut with power, it's very easy to break that finger. Mm. Okay. Or you so hit then, something inside the body or clothing item. You, get, you hit something hard. Any, any, well, the thing is, anything that you want to cut, you should be cutting with maximum force okay so the idea of going through the motions and saying well this will be a superficial cut this will be superficial again if your targeting is proper whatever you're cutting you should have a clear understanding of what the physiological damage is you're trying to trying to cause okay wow. so if you wanted to cut through somebody's bicep for example you say okay i'm going to cut his bicep first of all why are you doing that well the bicep bends the elbow which means that if he's wielding a weapon with that arm he can't rechamber his arm to try to hit me again when you look at the inside of the bicep, you've also got all the nerves that come through that feed the rest of the arm. If you cut the peripheral nerves, you can literally destroy the brain's ability to control the arm. And you also take the brachial artery, which is 10% of your blood flow. Okay, so viable target. That's all good. But you have to cut deeply enough to hit all those targets, all those that package, uh, target package, basically. Exactly. You look at you look at all that stuff, and it's like, how much force does it actually take to cut through the bicep? Well, the way to validate that, one of the things we do in NBC is a thing called pork man. So what we do is I get about a five pound pork tenderloin, butterfly it, put it over a, a dowel rod, tie it on with a bunch of butcher swine and wrap that with about 30 layers of saran wrap and then tape the ends down. So what you end up with is a piece of meat with a big piece of bone in the middle of it and then cover that with uh, some jeans or uh, the sleeve of a jacket or whatever else it might be. And it's like, okay, this is what I have to cut. I have to quantify the destructive power of my knife. So then you take your knife and you cut and you say, okay, what did I get? Did I actually cut 
to the depth necessary to hit all the physiological targets that I'm trying to achieve with my tactics. Yeah. Okay. So I've done that thousands of times. Um, that's a big part of evaluating knives to big part of evaluating the destructive capacity of knives when I teach. So that is one of the demos I do in every seminar that I do to get people to wrap their heads around what you're actually trying to, to achieve. What's wow. funny is you'll have people in the back, you say, Hey, any questions? It's like, well, I got my knife here. Could you give this a try? I'm like, sure. And then you take a swat and it's like, here's a crease in the, the denim on the outside, or here's a little tiny cut. And it's like, well, first grand rep popping through. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're all disappointed because it's like, you know, Hey, I paid all this money for this knife. And it's like, yeah, sorry, man. You know, I'd rather you find that out now than later. And I've done lots of live blade cutting with karambits and karambit design varies a lot from one, you know, one to another. Some are better at some things than others. Um, some aren't very good at anything at all. Mm. Especially when you look at folding karambits, the idea of spinning something, you know, to, to cut on extension, because theoretically what you should be doing is you spin it out, you have a cut on extension with the, the back edge of the blade. As you mm. pull back, you have the second cut with the concave edge. And then as you bring it back into your hand, you have a third cut with a concave edge. So the theory is three cuts for each one of those spins. But the thing is, if you really don't have good edge geometry, if you really don't have sharp edges, or if you have a folder that can't have a sharpened back edge, right. now that initial spin is just you're burning calories for no reason. You're not accomplishing anything. So it's like, okay, why, why do I have a folding karambit? What, what, what does it really do? And again, you know, might as well put the final nail in it in the coffin. But, you know, when you look at it, it's like, okay, if I, if I showed somebody this, mm -hmm. I could arguably say, well, the blade like this, it's kind of like a Stanley utility knife. You get down at Home Depot, you know, it's kind of the same. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's kind of looking. Yeah. You know, it's something that they can kind of relate to and they may still look at it and say, well, I've never seen a pocket knife like that, but at least they have a better frame of reference. You show them a karambit and they're like, murdering looking <laughs> what is that? You know, and then again you're up there in in court and it's like well this is a purpose designed weapon when you look at knife laws and everything else some laws specify mm -hmm. that you can't carry a knife that is a purpose designed weapon so it has mm -hmm. to have plausible utilitarian aspects to it the identity of of the karambit these days is is much more identified as a weapon there's plenty of you know, you take a look at, you know, John Wick 3 and all that kind of stuff. You got that final fight scene. There's karambits flying all over the place. All they got to do is throw one of those in there. It's like, see, look, the bad guy's using that knife. You're a bad guy. Guilt by association. Wow. The, the story behind your blade, the purpose, the story that comes with any weapon you just select is, is very important. Yeah. Interesting. Again, if you want to be uh, considered as a good guy or gal. Yeah then you need to stack the odds in your favor. So you create, like you say, perception is reality. Yeah. Awesome. No, that's good stuff. That's all. That's good takeaways. Uh, and then blade length, what would you say would be, well, how much do you need? Do you need this big knife or um, what's a good guy length for babies? The legal length. The legal length. So, <laughs> I mean, again, what it comes down to, um, yeah. You know, you don't want your your start of your claim to self-defense. You don't want to start that with a felony in your pocket. Right. 
Okay. So the idea that, oh, I was justified in doing everything I did, but I did it with a knife that was technically an illegal weapon. Yeah. That weakens your case. Quite a bit. Okay. So what you do is there's uh, the best thing I would suggest for your viewers. There's a thing called legal blade. So if they go on to, um, what is it? Kniferights.org. So kniferights.org. And you'll see a thing for the Legal Blade app. It used to be a, a, a smartphone app that you had to pay for. Blade HQ actually sponsored the, the 2.0 version of it. So they developed the app and everything. And what's cool about it, when you look at knife laws in the U.S., you have all the state laws. But then just like with guns and everything else, just like with other weapons, unless the state preemption, what that means is the state law takes priority over any laws of smaller jurisdictions. Okay. When you look at states like Illinois and Massachusetts, you have a state law, but then Chicago and Boston have much stricter municipal laws. Mm. Okay. So when it comes to tactics, I still have family that lives in the Chicago area. My daughter used to live in Boston, so I used to visit her pretty frequently. And whenever I would go and visit there, I needed to carry a knife that is legal to carry. So the two and a half inch blade length limit was all you could get. So what I did was I actually took one of these, ground the blade down to two and a half inches. So now the knife was exactly the same as far as its configuration and everything else. Handle was exactly the same size. All my training, all my skills and everything else translated to that. But I had a blade that was two and a half inches long. So what I would recommend is for people in choosing a knife to go through that same process, take a look at Legal Blade, download the app. And what it allows you to do is you say, okay, you know, I live in this state. Punch in the state, take a look at the laws, and it'll show you either green, red, yellow, whatever, um, for the preemption to say, okay, does state law take priority over municipal laws? If it does, then you're good to go consistent, consistently throughout the state. If it doesn't, then you need to look at, okay, what are the cities that are listed as exceptions to the state law? And then if you travel to those cities or live in those cities, then you need to make sure that you can change gears accordingly. So it's, unfortunately, it's a really complicated thing because they all have their own laws and everything else. Plus a lot of it is still open to to case law interpretation and everything else. But the bottom line is choose a knife that has a trainer, and then choose yeah. one that has a blade length that is legal where you live and where you typically travel. And what that does is it shows that you as the good guy showed due diligence in everything you did and right. you're doing your very best to abide by the law. I'm a law abiding citizen. Look, here's proof. Right. Man, that is that. Wow. That's awesome stuff. We, we traversed 90% of the questions in that, in that last Run, that was great stuff. Small question about uh, if someone's attacked with and they do not have a blade, if you're going to say a few things about dealing with an attack like that, what would it be? So that, again, if we rewind back to how I got involved in martial arts in the first place, that was what scared me. So um, that aspect of things is still something that drives a lot of my training. In addition to MBC, martial blade concepts, one of the things that I'm most um, known for and also sought out for as far as training is counterblade concepts, empty hand defenses against knives. Yes. So uh, it's been a consistent focus throughout my entire training career, uh, but where it really gelled for obvious reasons was right after September 11th. 
um, because you you know obviously those events, the fact that you know box cutters were used and everything else in a secure environment, the idea of unarmed defenses against edge weapons was became near and dear to a lot of people's hearts for unfortunately a very cathartic reason. But um, anyway, uh, the CBC side of things, um, I've been very honored to have a lot of people from the law enforcement community come to me because they have looked at what they've learned through their defensive tactics program. And they're like, you know what, this doesn't cut it. I'm going to do some research and find something better. And then they would come to me. I had a lot of guys, a number of my certified instructors are from the uh, New Jersey state correction system. Mm-hmm because they run into that all the time. And these guys were like, you know, this is the best stuff we found. We're going to go through the entire process, become certified instructors so we could bring this back and teach it to our guys. Wow. So the, the basic premise of, of CBC, again, it's a logical progression. We call it an order of operations. Uh, first, you minimize damage to you. Secondly, if you can debilitate the attacker in some way so that you can at least buy a little t- little bit of time to earn your draw and be able to draw a, uh, an equal or better weapon, then you bring your weapon into play. If you can't do that, then essentially what we look at is limiting the mobility of the weapon-wielding joint or the weapon-wielding arm to one joint, the shoulder. So you essentially keep him from being able to have that mobility that will allow him to continue to attack you. Once you've done that decisively, create a power base and essentially rain blows on him to break him so that you can take him out of the fight and then create distance and create safety. Wow. You notice that disarm is not included in that process. So again, with traditional Filipino martial arts, lots of knife strips, lots of disarms and all this other kind of stuff. Again, that works great, provided they have a large enough weapon to project anything out of their hand. When you start trying those same techniques against like, well, I I have a whole collection of training knives and other tools and stuff like that that I use in training. One of the fun things to do when you get people who are trying to do that type of stuff, I took a box cutter, replaced the the blade with a dull steel blade, actually took a a thick eighth inch thick uh, piece of steel, made a training blade out of it, but put it into the box cutter. Ratchet the box cutter open, you hand it to his partner and then Guy's eyes get real big and it's like, it's okay. It's a safe trainer, but show me your strips now. And now you have these guys trying to do all these sophisticated techniques and realistically they'd be cutting a snot out of their hands because they don't have the leverage to do that. Yeah. When you focus on the arm itself and you focus on immobilizing the arm and controlling the entire arm, doesn't matter what the weapon is. So again, we try to take all those things out of, out of the equation to make it as all purpose as possible. Outstanding. Good stuff. Wow. That's, I think that that's a lot for everyone to chew on. That's, 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 uh, that's outstanding. Entering the closing questions now. What is your favorite quote or mantra? They always leave everyone's minds when I ask this question, but do you have one, Jared? Actually, one of the, probably the, the best known saying of NBC, we have a lot of NBC isms is what we call them. And the, yeah. the first one is have a plan and work your plan. Have a plan, work your plan. So what it means is to to actually have a plan to do something. So a lot of people will be like, well, I don't know what to do in this situation. Okay, great. Stop, think, war game it, and then create a plan. And then figure out how to make your plan as bulletproof as possible so that if you stick to that plan, it automatically takes into consideration the dynamics of, of a real situation. So rather than having to constantly change things, you say, okay, I'm going to power through because my plan is so solid and so logical and so adaptable that it keeps going and I keep going 
even if I run into bumps along the way. Outstanding. So yeah, build that thing, war game that thing, you know, live in that kind of go fantasy and just war game and use all your creativity for it. And it's also when, when you look at, you know, the idea of all the way from, you know, kind of the, the big picture approach to, okay, what is my plan all the way down to individual skills. We look at it that way as well. So if you look at like a malfunction clearance or something like that, you say, okay, what's my plan? Well, basically I need to, you know, get whatever is, is jammed in the chamber of this thing out of it. I need to make sure that I've got a good operating magazine and that I'm back up and running with the gun mechanically. Right. That's the, the principle-based approach. That's the plan. How you do that as far as the specific actions you take and everything, is it a type one malfunction, type two, whatever it is, it's like, okay, I'm going to rip the magazine out of this thing. I'm going to work the slide. I'm going to make sure that, you know, there's nothing in the way and I'm going to get a fresh mag into it and, and chamber it. Whatever those yeah. mechanics are, that plan may mutate a little bit along the way. If you have right. two to work with, one hand to work with, whatever else it might be. You know, again, the plan itself takes precedence. The mechanics that support it evolve or or adapt based on, on the dynamics of the situation. But right. the better the plan and the more you take those into consideration in your training, the smoother it's going to go in, in, in real time. Outstanding. Good stuff. A uh, habit that you think people should look at that makes them better people or better protectors? Uh, one of the habits is to uh, use YouTube, use any other kind of source of CCTV footage and look at the reality of violence. Right. It's uncomfortable. It, it makes our skin crawl when you see something. But what you need to do is to look at it and say, OK, this is the way that predators operate. This is the, the, the viciousness, the ruthlessness that they bring to the table and use that to inspire whatever actions you are capable of taking based on your personal plan. So if it comes down to something where you say, okay, if I ever ran into somebody like that, I don't know what I would do physically. Okay, great. Then be that much more committed to avoiding that type of thing and, and tune up your powers of awareness, tune up your powers of avoidance and everything else so that you can you know, look at the pre-incident indicators that are associated with it. Really just embrace the, the full brutal reality of, of actual attacks so you can look at it and say, okay, this is what I'm up against. This is the nature of the problem whatever I do as a solution has to work in that context. Yeah. Outstanding. I love it. Good stuff. Uh, how would you like to be remembered, sir? Well, it's all said and done. As a guy with hair? No. <laughs> Long gone. Um, no, what, what I would like to be remembered as is, is this one of the things I get from my instructors all the time because I, I created an instructor program and they're like, you know, well, we want to be able to teach like you. We want to be able to do this like you. We want to be able to do that. I said, you know, the first step in that is aspire to think like me. And they're like, well, you know, I don't get it. And I said, it's what it comes down to, just like what we talked about a moment ago with the, the YouTube thing, is you want to look at the reality of a situation and then you want to think through it logically and figure out what resources you have to be able to solve the problem or address the problem. Mm -hmm. that skill, that process, and that approach to things is way more important than, hey, here's my cool super secret technique that I came up with. Right. Because you're going to serve a broader audience. You're going to help more people. You're going to empower more people by having them look at who they are as individuals and teaching them to think and uh, assess their own 
again, their own capabilities. Um, yeah. I think that is really, the more instructors we can get to kind of think that way, the better we as self-defense instructors, as tactical instructors and everything else, I think the better we'll serve our audience um, because you know we're, we're not creating excuses for people, but at the same time, what we're doing is empowering people who would otherwise be discouraged because we set a standard that really is not achievable for them. But right. it doesn't make them any less entitled to the right to self-defense. Right. You know, uh, people look at it and, you know, like when I was involved in the Best Defense TV series, had Mike Sieglander next to me. So Mike, yeah. very imposing, strong guy, incredible yeah. shooter, just all around, very, very capable guy. Right. And we'd have people come up all the time and it's like, well, you know, I can't do martial arts like you and I can't do, you know, all this stuff like seek later. He could bench press a cow and all this other kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I said, right. You're who you are. Right. The way that we structured the show, we always included the final best case scenario, which focused on awareness and avoidance and de-escalation and soft skills and everything that allows you to avoid having to use the physical skills. And I said, that message is for you. Yeah, yeah. You can't do what Mike does. You can't do what I do. Great. Don't stop trying, you know, keep trying to develop your physical skills to the best ability you can, but realistically think about what you can do, focus right. on that and then come up with an appropriate plan. Absolutely. Self-protection is about self. <laughs> That's outstanding. That's good stuff. Well, it's been it's been an honor just spend this time with you, Michael. It's it's um, it's it's been really power packed. There's so much content here uh, for people to soak up. Um, if you guys aren't watching us on YouTube, check the show out. He's got a whole wall full of accomplishments and books behind him. Uh, it looks amazing. It's it's really been an honor to learn from you, sir, even in this brief brief show. So thank you so much for spending this time with me. Uh, I truly appreciate appreciate the opportunity, and um, it's nice to connect with with your audience. Um, if there's anything that I can ever do to help you out, by all means, please reach out. Be honored. Outstanding. That means a lot. Thank you. Um, what are you up to these days, and where can people find you, sir? Um, with the pandemic and all that kind of stuff, I'm not teaching as actively as I'd like to, um, yeah. simply because the of the limitations there, but I, we're slowly starting to get back into the seminar schedule. So again, marshallbladeconcepts.com is my website. If you want to just learn more about kind of my background and what we do. Um, If you're looking for instructional videos and everything, uh, marshallbladeconcepts.com also links to marshallbladeconcepts.tv. And it also has the seminar schedule up there. Um, But probably the best thing, if if you're really looking to kind of take a deep dive into the way that I approach things, we have a uh, distance learning program. Uh, So the distance learning program, the, the, the way I always kind of explain it, when you take a traditional seminar, especially a martial arts or self defense seminar, everyone kind of stands back about 20 feet instructor gets up does his thing and it's like okay partner up and give it a try. And then everyone turns to their partner it's like. I don't know what he just did. <laughs> yeah, like uh, yeah. The instructor, if he if he does his thing right, he goes around and he basically gives little mini lessons for each pair of students. And it's like, okay, you know, here, look at this. And in many mm-hmm. cases, what I try to do, I try to create that first person perspective. Hey, look over my shoulder while I do this. Give you that mind's eye view so you can relate left and right sides, create a mental image that you replicate with your own execution of the technique. That's wow. the, the camera work that we strive for in the distance learning program. So we currently have about 62 hours of content 
um, wow. distance learning program. It's available as either a monthly subscription or an annual subscription. And wow. adding on average about 30 to 60 minutes of content every month. Um, and what's cool about it is once you get into the DLP, you also become part of the NBC community and you get access to our online forum, which is a closed forum. We don't tolerate trolls or anything. So it's only people in the, in the community. And at nice. that point, it becomes truly interactive. So let's say you're watching something on YouTube and you say, hey, I saw this thing where this guy was attacked in this way. And I don't think we have a solution for it. Okay, great. You post that on the forum, get a little bit of discussion. It's like, you know what? We've got a good idea for that where we can take this skill that we already have in our toolbox and adapt it to the needs of that situation. Let me create a lesson on that. And then I'll build a video lesson. Next month rolls around, you look for your new content, bang, it pops up in your library. And essentially it becomes an interactive learning experience because you can actually direct which, you know, where we go with the content. Uh, or if you, you watch a lesson and you say, you know what, I didn't understand this part. Can you give us more detail? Sure. So it really becomes a really nice interactive way of, of doing things that um, we, we share the information, but we share it at a depth that is, is much more detailed than what we can do even in a lot of our hands-on training. Man, that is great concept. It's got community. It's, 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 it's growing, you know, it's, it's, it's evolving. Um, that sounds, that's like, sounds like something you guys need to go check out. I'm going to check it out myself. That's outstanding. And that's at found where? That's also at marshallbladeconcepts.com. So what you'll, what you'll find there and actually, um, let's stay in contact after we stop talking here. Uh, yes, if you sir. like what I can do is I can create a discount code for, uh, for your audience, uh, give them a break. If they would like to jump in and take a look at the DLP and everything, just make it more affordable to them for, their diligence and, and patience and endurance in hanging around listening to us talk, uh, talk a bit. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll put all that the details for that in the show notes. You guys, if you really want to get interested in that and, uh, and take your skills to the next level. Thank you so much, Mike. That's, 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 that's been an honor. Thank you, sir. The honor is mine. I really appreciate the opportunity. Boom. Yo, what up? I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. Hey, listen, in order to get more out of the brand, I want to encourage you to go join us on our social media platforms and join us at protectornation.com. We post different types of content on our different platforms at different times. Uh, you'll get blog posts, you'll get videos, you'll get real world combat engagements and things like that. So stay plugged in in order to get the most out of the brand. In order to support us, also go to protectornation.com and buy something or join forces with me on Patreon. You'll scroll down the homepage and you'll see the link. Uh, anything you can give counts, you know, think about whatever you would lose in your cushions or like spend on McDonald's this month, five bucks a month, whatever it is. Uh, that helps. That helps us make the world a better place by making good people dangerous. Anyways, this is Byron Rogers, protector by nature and by trade. And I'll see you on the next piece of content, whether it's a video or podcast out. <laughs>